Hey folks, and welcome to episode 197 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart is going to continue our new series on the Song of Songs. Here, he's going to be discussing how wisdom is related to erotic love and how sexual knowing is a model for all knowing. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by these observations on this book. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here with Brian Motes. Uh, we are in the second episode of a series of discussions of the Song of Songs. As I explained at the beginning of last episode, we're taking a break from the lectionary discussions. We've done the lectionary for a couple of years, and uh, although it's, uh, we think it's a valuable, uh, it's a valuable pursuit, uh, we're taking a break and doing some other things for a while. Uh, we may return and do the last year of the lectionary cycle at some point in the future. But we chose the Song of Songs uh, in order to uh, give us something we could we could work through without uh, without getting bogged down, you know, rather than trying to work through uh, Isaiah, which would take us uh, several decades to finish. Uh, the Song of Songs is a compact eight chapters, so we can we can uh, uh, reasonably expect to cover it within a, a couple of months of uh, discussions. And it's also a, a book that uh, addresses. Although somewhat indirectly, it addresses the concerns that uh, dominate our cultural discussions, concerns about sexuality, uh, sex roles, gender roles, desire, and so on. And we're hoping that uh, through a discussion of the biblical text, we can begin to address those. So uh, Alistair Roberts, as I explained in the last episode, is not with us. Uh, this time, he, uh, he'll join us for the remainder of the series uh, he's traveling uh, over to the States, and he'll be with us for uh, several weeks, and we'll be doing all the rest of the Song of Songs recordings uh, while he's here during the month of January. And uh, so he'll be able to contribute uh, to the discussion, and uh, not just uh, commentary on the Bible, but contribute his uh, from his work and study on the theology of the sexes, which he's been working on for a number of years. Uh, last time we looked at the some introductory questions about the song. Uh, we looked at the timing, when was it written, who was the author. I suggest it was written by Solomon. And if it was written by Solomon, then it must have been written within Solomon's lifetime. That, uh, that's a logical entailment of saying it was written by Solomon. We also looked at uh, some of the overall themes of the book, some of the structures of the book. I suggested that the song could be written as an allegory of Israel's history and roughly follows the sequence of Israel's history and the rhythm of presence and absence that we find in Israel's history. Uh, the Lord coming to his people to rescue them, then his people turn from him and he abandons them to their own sin. They repent and he comes back and you have this, this oscillation between presence and absence, between communion and alienation. Uh, that's, a, that's a structural feature of the Song of Songs. Now, also suggested that the book is about the glorification of the bride. The bride ends up being called the Shulamite which is the feminine form of Solomon. She ends up being the feminine alternative or equivalent of Solomon, uh, but that's not what she is at the beginning. She, she rises to that level through the course of the poem. 
So it's about the glorification of the bride. Uh, and we also looked at something of a structural, uh, a formal structure of the book, and I suggest that it's running through a similar cycle of events at the center chapters, chapters uh, uh, three through seven are running through a similar cycle of events uh, a couple of different times. And right at the center is the Feast of Love that we have in chapter 416 and 5.1. I want to address another kind of general question or um, introductory question today. And that is a question of what the Song of Songs is doing where it, uh, in the place that it is in uh, our Bibles. Why is it classified as a wisdom book? Uh, it doesn't need to be. I believe, I should have checked this, but I believe that in the Hebrew canon it's classified with the writings. Um, it, that's, that's where it would be now that I think about it. Of course it's with the writings because it's not Torah. It's not prophetic. And so it must be with the writings along with uh, other wisdom, what we call wisdom books, but also along with uh, things like the book of Esther and uh, some other narratives. Uh, but in our Bibles, it's classified along with uh, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes as a book of wisdom. So why is that? Why would, why would uh, the Song of Songs be included here? One might think of Bottom the Weaver from Midsummer Night's Dream, who says that... Uh, Something along the lines that uh, love and wisdom don't uh, aren't uh, don't uh, keep keep company uh, very much. They they tend to they tend to operate in different circles. Uh, so why would a book of the Bible that's a book about sexual love, about erotic love, be included with the wisdom books? Um, one reason I think probably the obvious reason that uh, the Song of Songs ended up here is because of its authorship. It's uh, attributed to Solomon in the first verse, and I believe that it was written by Solomon, as I explained um, last week and given at least a superficial defense of that idea. Um, but if it's written by Solomon, Proverbs are largely written by Solomon. Ecclesiastes is traditionally understood to be written by Solomon. Uh, and Solomon is the king who is endowed with wisdom. So you put these all these books together that are Solomonic books, and they constitute a genre of literature within within the Old Testament that's uh, a, um, a uh, that's a, a set of wisdom books I think that's probably the um, historical reason why the two why this book was put where it is but I think there are reasons from within the book and reasons more generally from within biblical theology to see this as a um, as a book of wisdom now, one line of argument would be is to look at the parallels in terminology and language that we have between uh, the standard wisdom books, uh, the book of Proverbs, and some of the wisdom psalms, for example, uh, and the terminology and language that's used in the Song of Songs. The most extensive discussion of this that I know of comes from a book by um, Edme Kingsmill, um, a 2009 monograph called The Song of Songs and the Eros of God. Uh, and uh, it's a, that's a fascinating book, a very eccentric kind of interpretation of The Song of Songs, but just full of really fascinating information. But she has a lengthy discussion of, and a lengthy list of the parallels in terminology between uh, The Song of Songs and the Book of Proverbs. And I won't take time to highlight all of them, but let me point to a few of them. Proverbs 9.2, we're told that wisdom mixes her wine. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She's preparing the feast 
of wisdom, and that feast of wisdom includes mixed wine. The Bible talks a lot about wine. The Bible has in, uh, quite a quite a uh, an amazing amount of information about wine, wine making and wine uses of wine and so on. Uh, but mixed wine is not uh, mentioned very often. But we do have it uh, there in Proverbs nine and also in the Song of Songs. Uh, in the second of the bridegroom's wasifs, as I explained last time, a wasif, W-A-S-F. A wasif is a kind of poem. The term comes from Egyptian love poetry, and it's a kind of poem where the one lover describes the beauty of his or her beloved uh, by celebrating each feature of the, of the other. So in Song of Songs chapter 7, the bridegroom is, uh, says, How beautiful are your feet and sandals. The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Your navel is like a round goblet, which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced with lilies. So there's the, speaking about the, the bridegroom's uh, navel, uh, it's like a goblet of mixed wine. And whatever that means, we have the, the use of the mixed wine image that we had in Proverbs 9, 2. In Proverbs 9, 2, wisdom Lady Wisdom is preparing a feast that includes mixed wine. In uh, Proverb, in Song of Songs 7-2, it's the beloved who is described as having a body that has a goblet that's full of mixed wine in it. The, the, fact, that Pro, the Pro, fact that Proverbs describes wisdom as a woman uh, gives us a hint that there's a, a further hint that there's a connection here and a, further, and a suggestion that uh, the bride in the Song of Songs is a beloved. It's the beloved of Solomon, but is also, in some sense, wisdom herself. That she herself is a uh, uh, she. She herself uh, provides the mixed wine for the feast of wisdom. So that's one uh, one use that's uh, common to the two. Uh, in another one in uh, Proverbs five. Uh, 18 and 19. Solomon is exhorting his son to avoid the adulteress and to cling to the wife of his youth. Uh, verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind as a graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Why should you go, my son, to be exhilarated with an adulteress embrace the bosom of a foreigner? And then he goes on to warn about the consequences of seeking out a strange woman, seeking out the adulteress. So the, that, um, uh, his exhortation is to let the uh, breasts of the wife of your youth satisfy you. Don't seek another woman's bosom. Don't seek another woman's breasts. Be satisfied with the breasts of your own wife. So pause a second and recognize that there's a, the reference to breasts as a focus of erotic desire uh, is comparatively uncommon in the Bible. Uh, when the breasts are mentioned Prior to the, I think prior to Proverbs, I think every reference to breast prior to Proverbs is a reference to a woman nursing a child at the breast. There's no reference to an adult man being, being attracted to a woman because of her breasts. But when we get to the wisdom literature, that, that becomes a, a theme. The, 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 uh, the, the son is supposed to be satisfied with the breasts of his wife and be satisfied with her love, satisfied sexually with her rather than seeking an adulteress. So just the fact that there's a, 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 an erotic reference to breasts is comparatively unusual in the Bible. Uh, and we have the same, um, same uh, image in uh, 
the Song of Songs, where the, uh, that is, the, the breasts of the woman become an object of delight to an adult man. The Song of Songs 4 or 5, your, your two breasts are like fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. And I think we also have a um, reference to breasts again in chapter 7, verse 3. That both of these are wasifs, both of these are poems by the lover celebrating his beloved, and both of them refer to the breasts being like fawns. So again, uh, that, that seems like it's a relatively unimportant or uninteresting parallel until you realize how rare it is in the Bible that uh, breasts are being focused on as, as objects of desire and beauty. But they are in the Proverbs, they are in the Song of Songs. Uh, another parallel, um, this from the, the Psalms, Psalm 19, which is a kind of wisdom psalm about the law of the Lord and its, um, its uh, perfection, its certainty, its purity. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether, verse 9 says. And then, verse 10, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the droppings of the honeycomb. By them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. So the, the statutes of the Lord are um, desirable like gold. The statutes of the Lord are sweet like honey, like the drippings of a honeycomb. And in the Song of Songs, we have um, the woman herself is uh, described as having the sweetness of honey. And specifically, uh, the sweetness of honey is in her lips. Um, this is Song of Songs 411. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garment is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Um, in the in, uh, sorry, Psalm 19, it's the statutes of the Lord, it's the fruit of his lips, it's the words of his lips that are sweeter than honey. Uh, in the Song of Songs, it's the lips of the bride uh, that are like honey. Uh, honey and milk are under her tongue. Obviously, in the context of the Song of Songs, this erotic poem, that's referring to her lips as desirable for the, the beloved, for the lover to kiss. But uh, that the kiss, I think, takes on connotations beyond just physical satisfaction or physical, physical pleasure in the song. Um, the desire for a kiss is not just, not just a desire uh, to have this physical contact, but it's also a desire to be face-to-face, -face, have a face-to-face -face encounter, have a breath-to-breath -breath encounter, uh, to share breath and to share words and to share life together. That's all bound up with, this, with the image of the lips. We'll talk about oscillation, uh, about kissing, uh, when we get to look, start looking at the uh, uh, specific, more specifically, different sections of the song in a few weeks. But for now, at least, we can say that Proverbs talks about the sweetness of the Lord's words coming from His mouth, coming from His lips. The Song of Songs uh, speaks of the sweetness of the bride's lips. Um, Kingsmill brings up a lot more parallels like that. I'll just, I'll just refer to one last one. I'm going to pick one out of all these. Let me uh, uh, go to Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8 is, uh, again, part of the description of wisdom, uh, lady wisdom. It describes lady wisdom as being present at the creation. It's by wisdom that the Lord made the heavens. This is Proverbs 8, verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way, before His works of old. From everlasting I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times. There's no depths I was brought forth when there were no springs abounding with water before the mountains were settled, before the hills I, I was brought forth, when he had not yet made the earth and the fields nor the first dust of the world. So she's there as, uh, as, the, uh, as, a, as the means, as it were, for the Lord to create. 
And then verse 30, I was beside him as a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. So uh, wisdom is a master workman in verse 30. And that same phrase is used in Song of Songs uh, 7. Again, part of the uh, second wasif. I read this a, a few minutes ago, but 7.1, How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O prince's daughter. The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist, the work of the hands of a master craftsman. The same terminology is used uh, to describe the beauty of the, of the woman. And again, you have this link between lady wisdom and the bride. So those, kind of, those kinds of uh, parallels support the idea that the Song of Songs is to be understood as a song of wisdom and that the, 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 the bridegroom's, the lover's desire for his beloved, it is erotic desire. It is, uh, don't wanna, you don't want to skim over the surface of the text and go off into a, uh, an allegory that's detached from what the text is actually talking about. The text is talking about uh, sexual love, erotic love. Uh, but bound up with that is uh, this uh, notion that the Song of Songs is, a, is, a, is about the pursuit of wisdom and about the desire of, of a prince or of a king for wisdom and the kind of passionate pursuit of wisdom that Solomon commends in the Proverbs uh, is being depicted uh, in, the, in the Song of Songs. Uh, this, this idea that uh, there's a, a wisdom dimension to the Song of Songs is a, uh, is a common observation among ancient commentators and probably most, uh, as, as far as I know, the most, um, I guess, systematic uh, description of the Song of Songs as a wisdom book comes from Origen, who wrote an early commentary on the Song of Songs, an allegorical commentary on the Song of Songs. And he put it in a sequence of wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, he saw as a progression in wisdom. Uh, uh, working through those uh, books, you're uh, moving more and more deeply into wisdom. Uh, and he basically summarized the sequence this way. Uh, the Proverbs is a book about ethics. It's about moral science. It's about moral knowledge, how you should live, what you should practice. Um, Ecclesiastes is, uh, uh, does include that, includes ethics, includes exhortations to behave in certain ways. But it's more centrally, uh, I guess you could say, metaphysics. It's about the fleetingness, the temporality, the ephemerality of this world, the world under the sun, and the need to seek a uh, a God who is beyond that, a God who is, transcends the world that's under the sun. So you move from ethics to metaphysics, that's a move, for origin, that's a move from uh, the more superficial to the deeper understanding of reality. And then the Song of Songs, you actually move into something uh, for even deeper. Uh, you move uh, to things that are unseen and eternal, as he says. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, you're aware that the, the world under the sun is fleeting, but you don't get much of a glimpse of what's beyond the world under the sun. Uh, in the Song of Songs, he suggests you do. And of course, he's interpreting the Song of Songs allegorically, so that what's happening in the Song of Songs is you're moving beyond this world into an encounter with God, a, a, a communion with God that is analogous to a communion between a man and a woman. Um, I think that there's something to that. I, I think the origin's way of describing the sequence reflects his uh, his particular uh, philosophical commitments, his theological commitments, 
uh, the deeper you go, the more you depart from the things of this world and the more you're caught up with things that are beyond this world. And I don't think that's quite what's going on in the sequence. But I think he's right that there is a sequence as you go from Proverbs to Ecclesiastes to the Song of Songs. But I I would put it this way, uh, keeping with the erotic connotation or the erotic dimensions of each of the books. Proverbs has an erotic dimension, Ecclesiastes does, and obviously the Song of Songs does. For Proverbs, the, uh, the erotic exhortation, the command is to desire and choose Lady Wisdom. And um, in the structure, of the structure of the book of Proverbs, the prince does choose Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom is the good wife, the, uh, the excellent wife of chapter 31. Um, the excellent wife of chapter 31 is also a model for human wives, but it's uh, fundamentally Lady Wisdom. Uh, that's the exhortation of Proverbs, choose Lady Wisdom. Ecclesiastes is less obviously about uh, has has a less obviously erotic dimension, but it, it recurs again and again to this exhortation to cling to the wife of your youth. Eat, drink, rejoice. Uh, the Lord is uh, shepherding the wind. You can't shape the vapor. In this world of vapor, there is no stability. There's no, there's no certainty here, but there's a God who transcends. And for you, in this world of vapor, the, the place where you find security and joy in the midst of this vapor is in your work in eating and drinking and in clinging to the wife of your youth. So uh, there's, uh, although the, the the wife in Ecclesiastes, I don't think exactly represents Lady Wisdom, uh, wisdom calls uh, uh, calls us to cling to our wife or to husband, our husband in the midst of this world of vapor. That's a place of stability and, uh, and joy in the midst of uh, everything that's fleeting. And then the Song of Songs, moves beyond that. It's not just uh, seek Lady Wisdom, seek Lady Wisdom by clinging to the wife of your youth. It's seek Lady Wisdom, cling to the wife of your youth. And in doing that, in that kind of love, uh, we are sharing in the love that that, uh, triumphs over death, the love that is as strong as death. We're sharing in the very flame of Yah. I think the the theme verse that I mentioned last time in Song of Songs 8.6 takes us beyond what Proverbs and Ecclesiastes have told us and says that our uh, our love, our sexual love, our erotic love, our actual physical love, uh, our human love uh, is a sharing in the love that God has for us. There's a, a real participation, as it were, in the love of God. Um, another way to get at this is to uh, see how the Song of Songs uses the imagery uh, of uh, the land uh, the land of Israel, the imagery of natural beauty, the imagery of gardens and enclosed places and so on. Uh, Robert Alter, in his chapter on Song of Songs and the Art of Biblical Poetry, makes the point that the Song of Songs, the imagery of the Song of Songs actually moves in exactly the opposite direction as most from most erotic poetry. Alter said that most erotic poetry sees eros, sexual desire, as a desire that leads us away from this world. It, it leads us to detach ourselves from this world. You think of the, uh, the courtly love tradition of the medieval world where the lovers um, uh, spurn and renounce all their obligations, their common everyday obligations in order to uh, be together as lovers. You can think of romantic uh, stories and romantic films of the modern age where the lovers, in spite of being surrounded by all kinds of political and real world turmoil, find this little cocoon 
of uh, safety within that, uh, just between the two of them. The example I've given over the years is uh, the film The English Patient. I'm, I have to find a, a more recent film to illustrate it, but The English Patient is a good example of, so it's taking place in World War I, but you forget that World War I is happening because the lovers forget that World War I is happening. All this political, the, the world is consumed by war, but the lovers are able to detach themselves from that and uh, love is a is a uh, movement out of the world. And Alter says that's the direction of much of the world's erotic poetry, but that's not the direction of the Song of Songs. He says the Song of Songs, the way the imagery works in the Song of Songs, actually um, the world becomes part of the love between the two lovers. It's incorporated into their love. Uh, this is the way he puts it. He says the imagery of the song translates bodily reality into fresh springs, the bodily reality of the two lovers into fresh springs, flowering gardens, highlands over which lie the animals bound, spices and wines, cunningly wrought artifacts, resplendent towers and citadels and gleaming pools. The body in the act of love often seems to display the rest of the world. The world is constantly embraced in the very process of imagining the body. The natural landscape, the cycles of the seasons, the beauty of animals and floral realm, profusion of goods afforded through trade, the inventive skill of the artisan, the grandeur of cities are all joyfully affirmed as love is affirmed. That's Robert Alter from The Art of Biblical Poetry. And the point he's making is that the lovers don't lose the world in their love. Rather, the world is re-found in their love. Uh, so the, the lover in loving his beloved is loving the world in his love for the beloved and, and vice versa. She's finding the world afresh in, uh, in the love that she has for her lover. Um, so that's, that suggests, again, a way of thinking about the, the book as a wisdom book. Um, the, uh, suggests that there's a, uh, there's a, the, the altar saying that the passion that the two lovers have for each other incorporates the world and all the dimensions of the world into that passion. The world is refound and re-seen through the eyes of the, of the, the other, and it uh, becomes part of the love between the two. And that suggests that there's an analogy between the, uh, erotic love that's expressed in the Song of Songs and the the way that we engage the world in general. I don't know if uh, Roger Bacon actually said this or if he said it and meant it this way, but it's often attributed to Bacon that uh, in order to discover the secrets of nature, nature being feminine, nature has to be tortured or raped in order to discover secrets. You take the secrets of nature by force. Again, I'm, I don't know if Bacon actually said that or meant that, but it's claimed that's often attributed to him. That's not the picture in the Song of Songs. It's not a forceful uh, dominion. It's not a forceful uh, uh, wrenching of secrets from the world. Rather, uh, our encounter with the world and our uh, desire to know the world is like an erotic desire. Uh, it's not insignificant that the first use of the word know, the verb know in the Bible, is in the context of Adam and Eve. Adam knew his wife and she conceived. Uh, that, that model of knowing, sexual knowing becomes a model of all knowing, uh, and sexual wisdom becomes a model of all wisdom. Uh, and that's, I think, part of the message of the song that's relevant much more broadly than just to, to, to uh, sexuality. It's a message that, we can, that we'll try to tease out over the next couple of months as we continue to look at the Song of Songs, how the, uh, the Song of Songs gives us uh, a way of thinking about our encounter with God, our encounter with one another, and our encounter with the world in a way that uh, reflects the wisdom of God. 
Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm